The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, good evening, guys. How's everybody feeling tonight? Totally excited about tonight. Love that. Thank you, Holly. <laughs> All right, Book of Isaiah. Everybody got a Bible? Everybody got a handout? I don't mean the handout. I mean the thing you got when you came in. Not like a put your hand out. Um, oh, cheesy jokes already. Yeah, Book of Isaiah. Man, whew, what a daunting book, but what an incredible book. Um, I labored over this one. Um, <laughs> 66 chapters of prophecy, but man, God has just blown me away with this book. So I'm really excited to share uh, with you guys. But before we do that, let's, let's pray. Um, you know, you guys really, you don't need to hear uh, a teaching from me. You guys need to hear from the living God tonight, and you need to hear uh, him proclaim himself through his word. Um, honestly, can't think of a lot of books uh, that do that more clearly than Isaiah. So how exciting. But I'm going to ask you guys, actually, even though we just had a time of worship, I'm going to ask you guys to spend about 30 seconds on your own. Just invite the Lord to speak to you tonight. Engage the Lord tonight with your own words, with your own heart, and then I'll pray, and we'll get started. Sound good? Father, tonight, whether we realize it or not, you are high and lifted up. God, and whether we see it or not, the drain of your robe fills the temple, your people tonight. Your presence, God, is here. And God, your glory is unquenchable. We cannot add or take away from you, Father. You are perfect. But tonight, God, we just want to see you. And we want to see a, a bigger picture of the God that we serve. Because we know, Lord, when we see a bigger picture of who we serve, um, our faith grows. And our life is changed and transformed. So God, would you show off your glory tonight through this amazing prophetic book called Isaiah, Lord. Let us gaze upon your splendor tonight and be changed by it, Father. The deepest part of our heart and our soul. I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what our life would look like if you actually, for a moment, were carried up to heaven and were allowed to see not just God in his splendor, but allowed to see the final kingdom. The kingdom that has not yet been revealed yet. The kingdom that, that when God comes back and, 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 and sits on the throne in the new Jerusalem, uh, in his glory, it fills all of the earth and everything is restored in the new heavens and the new earth and, and, and there is no sin and no death and none of the things that we struggle with. If you were taken forward into the future and able to see for a minute what God really truly has in store for his kingdom, and then you came back here. I wonder how that would change the way you live. <laughs> I wonder what you would do tomorrow morning. I wonder what you would do when you got home. 
tonight. Isaiah had that experience. He had that experience where he was able to see more than any of us probably have seen or can understand about the fullness of God's kingdom purpose for his own glory. And it's an incredible book. Jesus, uh, when he was going to his hometown in Nazareth, and uh, I believe it's in John chapter 4, but he, he goes into his hometown, Nazareth, and what would happen in a little town like Nazareth is, is it, they didn't have someone that was a permanent speaker in the synagogue, so uh, because it was kind of podunk, kind of small. So when a rabbi, such as Jesus, who had some notoriety or some fame, came through into town, they would ask him to come and, and speak in that synagogue, and so Jesus comes in to the synagogue, you might remember this story, and he steps up to the pulpit or whatever it is, and he pulled out a scroll from the synagogue, from the pile of scrolls that would have been there, and he, un, he, he, he unrolls it and he begins to read this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then everyone would have been, would have been sitting in, in, in a room much smaller than this, and, and it says literally in the text that he rolled up the scroll, and that didn't happen because there was no cars at that, in that time. Uh, he, he gave it back to the attendant, the person who was in charge of the synagogue, and he, he sat down. That's what you did when you taught in a synagogue. You sat down. And he uttered one sentence, and everyone's on the edge of their seat. What is Jesus going to say? They'd heard some of his miracles. They knew that he was a man that had done great things. What is he going to say about this text? By the way, this text is from Isaiah. He quoted the book of Isaiah. He drew back to Isaiah, and here's what he said. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, everything Isaiah was saying right there about the Messiah and the future kingdom and all of these things, about bringing hope and, and, and about bringing restoration to the fallenness of the world, today, it is happening. Today, it is here, and it is here in me, Jesus said. Can you imagine that? He drew back. My point is this. He drew back to the book of Isaiah in order to show who he was. Isaiah wasn't some random poetic book that was buried somewhere and just pulled up. Isaiah was something that Jesus used to illustrate his authority as the Messiah figure that came to rule forever. He drew back to it. Later on, when Jesus is filled with fury and he's cleansing the temple and he's throwing tables and he makes a, a whip and he's driving out the money changers because they're ripping people off in his in his temple, he, he stops and he quotes something. He says, this is to be a house of prayer. What is he quoting? Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah. When Jesus is in dialogue with the Pharisees and he's calling them out for being uh, whitewashed tombs and all of the list of things that he calls them out for, for giving God lip service, but yet the inside of their hearts being cruel, he looks back and he quotes for his authority, he quotes Isaiah. It says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, Jesus reached back to the book of Isaiah. He knew this book. He quoted this book. Much of what he said was pulled from this book that was, by the way, written about 700 years before Jesus lived. 
These things he tried to show them were speaking of me. These things are being fulfilled today. And not just Jesus, John the Baptist, when he emerges onto the scene, the Pharisees come and they ask him, who are you and what are you and what are you doing? What's this ministry that you have? He pulls back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist quoted Isaiah. Paul quoted Isaiah. Peter quoted Isaiah. Guys, this book, (laughs) this book was referred to by the early church, the book of Isaiah, as the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel. By gospel, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. (laughs) Because it is seeping with messianic truth. It is seeping with Jesus in its pages. You can't go far without seeing Jesus, except for it was written hundreds of years before he lived. It's incredible. It's astounding. Isaiah is without a doubt, in my opinion, in most other people's opinion, the most complex and powerful prophetic book in the Bible in regards to its future telling of events. Okay? It's not the only prophetic book. There's lots of prophetic books. But Isaiah specifically, and, and, and when it comes to foretelling of the future, it's absolutely astounding how much he gets it right. And for that reason, Isaiah is also one of the most criticized books by scholars. Okay? For, for hundreds of years, scholars would say there's no possible way that Isaiah 53, which is a literal, like, like, to the T account of how Jesus would be crucified, we'll look at, his hands would be pierced, his back would be beaten, they would part his garments, all of the things that would happen to the T. They said there's no possible way that that could have been written hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. So it must have been added by the early church, must have been added. And then in the 40s, I believe it was, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Whoops, here's some scrolls that haven't been touched since before that, couldn't have been added. What does that tell us? God lives outside of time. He lives outside of time. God is much bigger than the scope that we have at present. So what is the theme of the book of Isaiah? The theme of the book of Isaiah is really simple. You ready? The theme of the book is God himself. It's God himself. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 48, verse 11. He says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The ESV study Bible has a really good quote in here about the theme of the book. It says, Isaiah defines everything else by its relation to God, whether it is rightly adjusted to him as the gloriously ventral figure of all reality. In other words, God himself is the center of gravity. Okay, And Isaiah portrays that God is reality. Everything bends to him. Everything is affected by who God truly is. Isaiah holds him up, not just as some figure in the narrative of mankind, but as the figure. Isaiah holds him up not just as a source of glory, but the source of glory. Isaiah holds God up as the end, the beginning, everything, the purpose of man, the purpose of creation, the purpose of eternity. All things are made by him and for him. And Isaiah portrays God in his most glorious state. It's a book about God. It's a book about his splendor, about his power. Now, before we get into the content 
of the book of Isaiah. Um, I want to ask the question just really quickly, what is a prophet? Okay, what is a prophet? And we've, we've visited this a little bit, but I'll tell you guys, those of you that have been tracking with us through this Old Testament overview, this is the first prophetic book that we've come across. Okay, uh, we've done books that were uh, poetic in nature. Uh, I'm surprised that you guys all came back after Song of Solomon last week. Um, <laughs> no, Jeremy did a great job on that. Uh, we just all blushed a little. Um, so there's poetic in nature. There's been um, narrative, lots of narrative books. There's been books of law. There's been all kinds of different wisdom literature. And now we're moving into a new section, and we're going to be in it for a while, and that is the book of the prophets. Now, the prophets literally are the books that everyone probably usually avoids. Because uh, they usually flip open to it, and it's something about wrath or judgment or something like that, and it's very poetic, and it's hard to understand, so we just go back and read Matthew again, right? Right? You guys all did it. You've all done it. Any of you guys ever flipped open Isaiah, Jeremiah, got discouraged, and went back to the New Testament? Okay, so the, the, the prophets, though, I have to explain what a prophet actually does. God gave three offices in the Old Testament to sort of be the stewards of his authority to God's people. The first was the priest. Okay, we, we met the priests in Leviticus. The priest's job was to atone for sin. Uh, it was to minister to God and minister to man on behalf of God. So we had the priest, then we had the king, right? The king's job was to lead Israel politically, to lead Israel as a nation physically. But then there's this third office that is uh, sort of in the place of God's authority, and that is the office of the prophet. So prophet, priest, and king, okay? The prophet's job was to primarily not just speak future events, although that is something that they did, but the prophet's primary job actually was to remind them of what God already said he would do in the law. So part of the reason the prophets knew that God was going to exile Israel wasn't simply because they, in an oracle way, saw forward into the future. It was more so because God said he would do it in the law. He said, if you disobey me, I'll pull you out of your homeland. I'll take away what I've given to you. If you disobey me, there'll come droughts. If you disobey me, there'll come starvation. If you don't obey my law, if you break my commandment, this is what will happen. And the prophets stood uh, to constantly remind them of what God had said that he would do. The prophets put the, the sort of the flesh on the bones of the narrative in that they showed what God was thinking in these events. They showed what God was, what God's heart was in these historical events. Now, here's the confusing part, though, uh, about the prophets is that they're inserted into the Bible by genre, not by, uh, not, not by when they took place. Does that make sense? So, for instance, the book of Isaiah falls at a certain time in history, and those events that he falls under, we've already studied. Next week, we'll look at the book of Jeremiah, and he's about 100 years later. He lived during a whole other set of events that we've already studied. So whoever put the Bible together clumped the prophets and the writings of the prophets together by genre, not so much by chronology. Okay, so what we have to do is we have to ask the question, first of all, what is a prophet? And second of all, uh, what, was, uh, what was the time frame that the prophet that we're reading fell under. Guys, this is huge. If you open up the Bible and you land on a prophet, Daniel or Micah or whoever, and you just start reading and you don't understand that there, was a f that there were literal things happening at that time that this prophet was speaking into, you're going to be really confused. You have to understand that every prophet lived in a certain period of time. 
Okay? So what I wanted to do with you guys before we get too far into the book is I want to ask the question, what was the setting of where Isaiah's ministry took place? So you guys all got a handout. Um, this is super cheesy clip art handout, but it's accurate. So there you go. Um, so on that, I took it and I, and I basically just put a strip down where Isaiah's ministry would have been. So you can kind of align it uh, on there. Uh, we could put it, did I get it on the, I didn't, you didn't get it? Okay. Um, no worries. So you'll see on there who the king was, where the kings were during his reign. You'll see in there who the other prophets that were contemporaries uh, of Isaiah were that lived at about the same time. And at the very bottom of the page, you can kind of see what was going on militarily, uh, with the whole nation and with them being conquered by Assyria and things like that. So that's something you can take home and, and, and use. So when you want to read a prophet, pull that out. Say, where did this prophet live? What king did he live at the same time as? You can go into Chronicles or Kings and read the stories of the kings that they lived at the same time of. And more than likely, when you do that, the book of this prophet is going to make sense to you because you're going to understand that there was a real, there was real events happening at the time of their ministry. So, where does Isaiah fall in um, the chronology of Israel? Okay, uh, Isaiah, or Isaiah chapter 1, 1 answers this. If you guys have your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 1. Keeping that handout in your other hand, flipping open to that, it says simply this. Was that the Holy Spirit? That noise? Was it? <laughs> I always wondered what he sounded like. Um, says this, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. I find it interesting, too, that he calls it the vision. The vision of Isaiah. In other words, it's based off of something he's seen, and we'll, we'll look at that more. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning what? Judah and Jerusalem. Okay? Ten points for anyone who can tell me what Judah and Jerusalem is. It's the northern kingdom? Nah, southern kingdom. Okay, southern kingdom. There's two kingdoms. Kingdom has split after Solomon. It split into two. We have the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. Kingdom in the south is referred to as Judah. And in Judah is the capital city, Jerusalem. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. So his prophecy is concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of what? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Four kings that Isaiah lived under the reign of. Four kings. Okay, and, and you'll see him, if you read the book, you'll see him referenced in the year of so-and-so king. For instance, in chapter 6, which we'll look at, in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, so out of the reign of King Uzziah into the reign of King Jotham. Okay, and don't get confused. There's a whole other set of kings that are in the north, but all Isaiah, all Isaiah is really concerned about is the kings in the south because he was a prophet to the south. Isaiah lived during some events that were huge, not only for Israel, but for the entire ancient world. Okay, the first event that he lived during was the Assyrian rise to power. Now, if you guys have studied history much, you know that basically it goes like this. One nation rises to the point where they almost conquer the entirety of the ancient world, and then they get overthrown by another nation, which rises in power until they conquer seemingly the entire ancient world. And it's a sort of a cycle that goes on from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans and so on and so forth, right? This is kind of how history moves. So at the time of Isaiah, the Babylon Babylonians weren't even around yet, right? Maybe in a smaller sense, but they weren't a world-ruling world, world empire yet. The big dogs were the Assyrians. 
Isaiah lived during the rise of the nation of Assyria in the north. And Assyria was a growing threat. Okay, it was a growing threat. It was sort of this looming thing that everybody knew off in the distance was growing more and more and more powerful and conquering more and more of the ancient world. And Israel knew that it was only a matter of time until Assyria would get to the point where they were going to come knocking at the door of Israel and take them over. Okay? So he lived during that time. He also lived during the actual exile of the northern tribes. Like I said, Assyria grew and bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually, what do you know, just like God said that he would, they came to the northern tribes and exiled the northern tribes, okay? He also lived um, during the Assyrian desolation of Judah, okay? So the Assyrians never fully conquered the southern kingdom, but they conquered almost all of it except for Jerusalem. If you guys remember the story of Hezekiah, you can go read it in 2 Kings. But basically, Assyria made it all the way to the doorstep of Jerusalem. But because of Hezekiah's faith, he turned to the Lord and prayed, and God stopped the army. So they were safe for another about 100 years till Babylon came along, and then they exiled them in the south. But that's a bunch of history stuff. So the other thing that you need to know about the setting that Isaiah lived in is that he lived in a time of rampant injustice and false worship, as did most of the prophets. Now, that's why the book reads so much judgment. That's why you're going to open it up, and odds are, 50% of the time, you're going to find something to do with judgment. It's because Israel is covenant breakers. They are covenant breakers. They're breaking God's covenant time and time again through idolatry, through child sacrifice, through prostitution, through injustice to the poor. The rich are are living in, in pleasure and not taking care of the poor like God had said. They're not honoring Sabbath. They're not honoring any of the things that God had set up for them to honor. And so they're living in rebellion. And this is the setting that Isaiah speaks into. Now, I just want to point out one thing really quick too because I didn't really get this until recently. Isaiah lived a long time before the majority of the other prophets, okay? Like, we're talking like 100 years. So this is like the difference between, uh, you know, someone in the 60s who was a big, I don't know, Chuck Smith and, and, and uh, Prince of Preachers, help me out, uh, Spurgeon, okay? Like, they lived a long part away. So other prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and a lot of these prophets that lived through the exile— they would have read and been familiar with these older prophets, such as Isaiah. Okay? He would have been sort of the first paving the way in some of these prophecies and laying out with clarity some of the things that God was going to do. Okay? There's a really, really big time difference, and you can see that on that chart that I gave you. Now, one thing to know about Isaiah, it's a book of contrasts. Okay? It's a book of contrasts. Uh, it's a book of exaltation on one hand and human abasement on the other. It's a book of God's um, hiddenness and God's nearness. It's a, God of, uh, a book of human rebelliousness and a book of God's forgiveness. It's a book of defilement and purification of a cut down oak tree and a holy blessed stump. Uh, it, the list goes on. But basically, Isaiah is it, a book of contrasts in that it, it points out the darkness of the situation of Israel that they're in and that they will be in. But then it always follows up with the hope to come. It always follows up with how God is going to redeem and restore this nation into this eternal kingdom that he keeps bringing up. That Jerusalem, even though it is basically prostituted itself, and that Israel, even though it's broken God's covenants, will be restored. There's hope. He constantly brings it back to hope. 
Now, one of the most astounding things about the book of Isaiah is this, and I've, I've alluded to this already, but Isaiah's prophecy extends beyond the time of his, ex- extends beyond his present time. Isaiah's prophecy gives for us, guys, literally the full scope of God's redemptive plan, further than we have even seen, further than we have even lived in. 700 years before Christ, he prophesied that Christ would come. But not only that Christ would come, but how he would return after in his second coming. Isaiah saw the full scope, the full reality of how God would redeem. So here's how we're going to attack sort of the book itself, okay? Uh, There's way too much content to cover, way too many themes to cover, but I think the easiest way to do it is to split it into time zones, if you will, okay? Time brackets, So here's how we're going to split the book into three. And I think this was one of your questions on your handout. Um, So you can write this down. There's three overarching areas of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Number one is the immediate. Okay? The immediate. And the immediate is just simply this. It's the kingdom of Israel chastised through the exiles. And by immediate, I mean the prophecies that Isaiah gives that are going to happen in the next couple hundred years from his time. Okay, so 600 BC, 500 BC. He he prophesies much of the book about what's going to happen in the near future. So we'll talk about those. And then number two, the future. Okay, so the immediate and the future, and that is the eternal kingdom realized through Messiah. So we'll look at not only what happened in Isaiah's time and just shortly after his time, but also what would come and what would happen through the Messiah. He prophesied all of that. And then thirdly, the final, which then is bad grammar, but eternal kingdom finalized through Messiah's return. So not only that Jesus would come, but also even further into the future, as I said, how Jesus would come again. He hits all three of those uh, areas. He hits all three of those uh, revealings or revelations of God's kingdom. So I just want to briefly kind of look at each of those, and I think that'll be the easiest way to take on an entire 66 chapters in like 10 minutes. So let's start with the first one, okay? The first one. And and before we do that, I wanted to read a quote by John Calvin about the book of Isaiah. In, in, In terms of how this book really doesn't seem to have time barriers, how it can go from the present to the, the immediate future to the messianic future to the, the final kingdom and just seem to jump around. Like Isaiah literally just will be writing at one point about something happening now and then all of a sudden he's writing about something that'll happen thousands of years later. Here's what John Calvin said about this. The prophecies of Isaiah must undoubtedly refer to the universal and what he means by universal is the fullness of, okay, the fullness of the kingdom of Christ. Universal, I say, because we must look not only at the beginning, but also at the accomplishment at the end. And thus it must be extended even to the second coming of Christ. What Isaiah is saying is, is that when you read Isaiah, you cannot read it without understanding that he is talking way beyond his own time. He's talking way into the future. And you have to understand that there are things that he says that may apply to Israel in the now or in the then. But there's also thing, that same thing may also apply to Israel in the future or apply to the church in the future. It seems confusing, but hopefully I can clear this up for you a little bit. So let's start with the first, the immediate. Here's some things that, and I'm going to go through these quickly because I don't, I don't want you to fall asleep. So here's the first thing that he goes through in the, in the, in the immediate. Okay, uh, in chapters 1 through 39, that's basically the the first chunk, and it's a big chunk, uh, of the book that can be sort of separated out together. And in that, it's primarily speaking judgments 
over the nation, primarily Judah, but also Israel in the north, speaking judgment to them of what was going to happen. He prophesies of the exile in the north by Assyria. He prophesies of the Assyrian onslaught on Judah, like I said, when he was literally knocking on the doors of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. He prophesies of the exile of the south, of Babylon. We're going to hear so much about that when you get into Jeremiah and Daniel and some of these other books. He prophesies of the overthrow of all of Israel's neighbors and enemies. So uh, really in chapters 13 through 23, he literally goes through all of the nations, including Babylon, including many others, and says, here's how you will be judged. Okay, so he doesn't only judge Israel, he also is pronouncing judgment on the surrounding nations. And then we get this crazy, and I alluded to this back in Kings, we get this crazy prophecy in chapter 44, verse 28, where Isaiah literally says how Babylon, which by the way, 100 years later, how Babylon would be overthrown by this king named Cyrus. Cyrus didn't even exist, okay? So again, you see Isaiah speaking way outside of his time constraints about some king named Cyrus of the Persian Empire who just so happened to exist and do exactly what Isaiah said he would do. Now you could say, oh, they must have added that later, Um, but I think God's a little bigger than that, okay? God spoke something through Isaiah and it took place and he did it many times. So chapters one through 39, lots of judgment, but also lots of hope. Lots of judgment, but also lots of hope. You see that contrasts there constantly. Not only does he talk about judging Assyria and the judgment of Assyria, not only does he talk about the judgment of Babylon, but he also prophesies hope by giving this picture that he comes to over and over again of this tree that's cut down. And he's basically saying Israel is like a tree, and this tree has been cut, cut down. It seems to be dead. But over time, a shoot or a branch comes out of this tree, and it's like this fresh new life. And that tree and that branch will spring up and grow into an even greater tree that was bigger than the first one even before. So with the judgment and with the destruction, he always prophesies hope that God's got something bigger in mind, that the, the destruction that's coming for Israel will actually turn into or be the fertilizer in the soil, which will allow something bigger to come, a fuller kingdom a more grand kingdom than Israel ever could have imagined. That was the theme of the book of Isaiah, a new Jerusalem, okay? The old Jerusalem would go away and a new Jerusalem would come. So that's sort of his prophecies in the immediate. But then he goes into the future, okay, in the far future, okay? He, he starts reaching even further into time in chapters 40 through 55. It's crazy. You pick up chapter 40, Okay. You pick up chapter 40 and you start reading after he's been talking about how Israel is going to you know, be, be demised and brought to destruction. And all of a sudden in chapter 40, he starts talking like everything is fixed. He starts talking in a past tense perspective that Israel is restored from the Babylonian exile. And you're reading it. I, I looked at it today. You're reading it and it's like, how is it all of a sudden that he's now looking back like Israel's back in the homeland? How is that possible? Uh, Because Isaiah, again, is prophesying outside of his time. Listen to this, chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Okay, Uh, After 39 chapters of judgment, here's what he says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Interesting. 
how all of a sudden Isaiah is talking, what he's talking about here is the fact that Israel would be brought back to their homeland after the Babylonian exile, hundreds of years after he even lived. He's saying, comfort will come. The war will end. You'll be restored back into your homeland. So again, he's prophesying into the future. Now, chapters 41 through 47 are kind of interesting because he says, even though you're restored back into your homeland, Israel is going to still have a hard time obeying and trusting God. So chapters 41 through 47 is sort of like this trial courtroom argument between God and his people where he's pleading the case to them why they should trust God because he was a good God because he restored them back after the Babylonian exile. But what do you know? They don't believe. They don't believe and they don't change their heart. They still begin to distrust God. And this is where the book shifts. Okay, this is where the book shifts. This is where the stump has been cut down and Israel is disobedient. Israel cannot seem to possibly believe. God had these plans for Israel to be this light to the nations, to be uh, the hope of the nations and Israel just can't seem to step into that calling. And so then the book shifts. The book shifts and starts talking about the servant. Okay, this is where it gets exciting. Everybody say servant. He starts talking about the servant. It shifts from Israel on all of the attention and all of the, the writing shifts to start talking about this person, the servant. Now, we read this in two, you know, 2017 or whatever year it is, and we, we look back with our, our, our theology and our theological understanding, and we know who he's talking about when he talks about the servant. Who's he talking about? Come on, it's the, it's the, it's the first great answer, right? Jesus. Uh, yeah, he's talking about Jesus. But Isaiah doesn't know that. And the, the readers don't know that. This, who is this servant? They would have read this with, with like mis, with mis, mystery. Who is this person that all of a sudden is in this narrative? Who is this person that all of a sudden Isaiah is talking about, this servant, this, this shoot that's going to come out of this dead stump and start bringing life? Let's see what we can learn about him just from looking at Isaiah. Okay, we're not going to look at the Gospels. We're not going to look at it. Let's see what we can learn about the servant just from looking at the book of Isaiah. The first thing we learn about him in Isaiah is that he is born. Okay, that he's born. Well, that sounds simplistic, but it, it, it's, it's important. Isaiah 7.14 tells us, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's not in John or Luke or Mark. That is in Isaiah, 700 years before, that a virgin will conceive and that the servant will come from that virgin and his name will be Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us is talking about the incarnation that God would become man, that he would be born, okay? What else can we learn about the servant from Isaiah? Well, we'll learn that the servant will become man. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up, and these will be on the screen. You probably won't have time to flip there because I don't have time to wait for you to flip there. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So what do we learn about the servant here? The servant is a normal person. The servant grows up among normal people. He's a carpenter. He's a normal person from a place like Nazareth where no one ever would have thought anything good could come out of. Okay? Isaiah tells us that Jesus would become a normal person <clears throat> to live a normal life. Now, where it gets even more uh, peculiar and where it would have been especially peculiar to the readers of that day is when this servant starts suffering. 
So, okay, the servant is born. Okay, the servant will grow up and be normal. But now this servant, this character that Isaiah is talking about, he's going to suffer. Okay, let's look at this. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He'll suffer and be rejected. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Interesting. You can imagine not knowing anything about Jesus back in Isaiah's day, reading that and thinking, what does he mean? This servant who's going to come is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. And then in 53 verse 8, we learn that the servant will die. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. In other words, this servant that will be born will also die. We learn that the servant will not only suffer, but he'll suffer for his people. So this servant figure isn't just coming to suffer. He's coming to suffer for a purpose. He's coming to suffer for a reason. Listen to what it says, Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Notice something. Is he talking in the future tense? No. He's talking in the past tense. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, says he has borne our griefs. How interesting is that? Again, Isaiah, not fitting inside of time outside of time, has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. So we learn a little bit here too about what the servant's purpose is. The servant was sent to be born and to live that he might suffer, but suffer for God's people. That he might suffer to redeem God's chosen nation. We learn in 53 verse 12 that the servant will also atone for sin. Go to the next one. The servant will atone for sin, 53 verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. And then verse 5, upon him, hymns, upon hymns, like songs, you know hymns? That's a joke, the typo. Upon him was, was, that was a typo. Uh, that was my type. I think I typed, it, I typed it in and he copied it, so it's not his fault. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. Okay, so again, Isaiah, not just going to suffer, he's going to suffer for his people, to bring healing to his people. And here's where it gets even more interesting. Isaiah didn't just prophesy that he would die, that he would suffer. He prophesied that he would rise. He prophesied that he would conquer death. Look at 53 verse 10. Uh, the servant will not perish, ultimately. Isaiah 53.10, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. And then there's other, other places in Isaiah 2 that we don't have time to get into that even point to the fact that he is alive. In chapter 55, all of a sudden he's alive. Lastly, the servant will also bring hope to all nations. Look at 55 verse 5. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. Okay, how incredible is it that we can learn all of that about the Messiah, about Jesus, without even getting into the New Testament? And I just scratched the surface. And most of that is in one chapter in Isaiah 53. It's insane. Isaiah truly is the fifth gospel. It's amazing. But it doesn't stop there. Okay, because I don't know if you guys know this, and I don't think we talk about this enough in the church, 
But Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead and ascending into heaven was not the end of the story. Do you know that? It's not the end of the story. The, 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 not, even, not even Pentecost, the church comes onto the scene, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is born.